1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of the nicest dudes I met way back when when I was a little kid and, and cool the whole way through, probably... If I'm being honest, probably the nicest guy in his band, in my experience, Eric Sandin of the band No Effects, a.k.a. Smelly. And he is here in celebration of the release of a brand new No Effects record. That's right. It's kind of like a No Effects week here. We have two episodes. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker Extraordinaire. Just Abraham, and he will get the message to me, and we can communicate that way. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do. If you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Left4Damian. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling everyone you know about it, letting everyone you know know that we do this podcast here, and that we have all sorts of guests just, just BSing about punk rock. You can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice. Or by heading over to patreon.com slash turnitapunk. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all the fine folks that do that. Uh, your support keeps this thing going. And speaking of support, keeping this thing going, thank you to the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. We just want to help you cover the costs. So you don't have to do it in your own pocket. And they have. And they really uh, helped me kind of cover the expenses around here, which there are some. You know, go figure. You do a free podcast, people complain about it, and and then it costs you money. Well, Vans didn't think that was right. They said, you know what? We will help it not cost you money. We can't take care of the other stuff, but we can help it not cost you out of your own pocket. And so thank you, thank you to them for that. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, it's a, it's a big one. It's, a, it's kind of like a, a two- two-episode arc, I guess, because it is No Effects week here on Turned Out a Punk, because No Effects has a brand-new album called called Single Album, and that will be out in stores at the end of February. It was just announced there's a brand-new single called Linoleum, which is a, a great song and a kickoff to what should be a very interesting record. They're promising this is the most introspective album to date and I'm excited. NoFX is a massive influence on myself, on, on the band I play in, Fucked Up. You know, like, uh, it's, they're uh, a band that I've, I've loved for a long time. And way back when, when I was like 14 years old, I must have been 15. 15 years old, I tried to do a fanzine. It was going to be called Drunken Box Kicking. I was going to do it with my brother. We are going to do it with uh, our friend Ted Moore. Josh Bricker was involved. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else was involved. Michael Kai, I believe, was in there. Will Sachs. Josh Kirshenblatt. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you all these names. <laughs> these names don't mean anything. But shout out to all these people if they're listening. I haven't spoken to some of them in years. Um, but we're going to do the zine. It was going to be awesome. And so we went out to the Warp Tour, and we, we had our sights set on all these bands that we wanted to interview only to find out. It's a lot harder to interview the bands at a big festival like that than it is at a normal kind of smaller DIY show. But somehow Tristan ends up meeting Smelly. And uh, next thing I know uh you know he's we're being taken backstage and we're sitting down and we're talking to him and he was just so cool to us. Like just out of anyone we talked to while making this zine, he was, you know, just just the chillest. Like it was just so awesome. And then, you know, fast forward years later and I'm playing on festivals with no effects, and he's still cool. He's still that guy. And uh yeah, I've always wanted to sit down and talk to him. And this is a this is a really fun episode. We we do touch on some heavy stuff. If you have not heard the No Effects audiobook, uh, or, the, or if you've not read the No Effects book, I, I promise you, even if you're not a fan of No Effects's music, this book will blow your mind. It is... This and Shane Carter's book, which I'll be getting to in, in a few weeks, but those two books are my two... I don't know, like, favorite such a weird word to use to describe this book because it is so harrowing. To read, but I, I strongly recommend reading it or, or listen to the audiobook. They did a, the audiobook's fantastic. Jello by Afra's there. Uh, Tommy Chong's on it too, but strongly recommend listening to that. This is a, a, a good companion piece to that one. But that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back and enjoy Eric Smelly Sandin on Turned Out a Punk. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Why, why, you, you know, I, I gotta say, you are the sexiest man that I've ever seen on the cover of Spin magazine.
1: Oh well, that that makes me blush. Once again, I'm really glad this is a audio podcast, not a video podcast. <laughs> um, I very much appreciate it. Also, I gotta say, years ago at the Warp Tour 1996. Uh, you were the coolest person ever and granted my brother and I an interview for our fanzine that actually never came out. Sorry about that. But <laughs> you were awesome. Awesome Ow. to us. Well, I don't remember, but I'm glad I granted you
2: guys something that didn't come to fruition.
1: Well, you definitely made our experience at the Warp Tour that day. And it was a, uh, yeah, I was talking to my brother just before I came on to do this and he was like, God, do you remember how cool he was to us at that thing? And I was like, All yeah, right, well, how absolutely. about this then?
2: judging from your past track record is this interview right now going to be a waste of
1: time is it going to come out oh my god you better believe i'm going to rush this one this isn't going to sit on the shelf very long my friend it's going to be pretty fresh there's a lot of stuff like i you know i i listened to the audiobook like we were supposed to do this a few um a few months ago um and it just didn't come to fruition but like i listened to the audiobook then and i was just making all these notes and so i have all my notes close at hand and i'm i'm ready to dive in cuz like You know, there's you talk about it briefly, but let's nerd out a little bit about Mystic Records and Caustic Cause and and uh, that whole world. But I got to start this off, Eric, which is the way I start them all off, which is how'd you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, yeah, the first time. I mean, I remember being a kid,
2: like I don't know, in probably like '77 or something like that, and I saw the the band the Tubes on TV, like on. Like they're like an old, like late night. I think there was this thing called Don Kirshner's rock concert or something like that. And the tube, the tubes were playing and they weren't really punk per se, but they were definitely not rock and roll. They were more kind of like new wave ish, uh, different artsy fartsy. And I was like, Ooh shit, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. Kind of weird, you know, but I was like 10 years old Mm -hmm. and then, um, uh, a couple years later, I was looking through a magazine and I can't remember which publication it was like, if it was time or people or cream magazine or some magazine. And I saw a picture of the dead boys and um, I didn't know what they were. And all I knew is that they were a band and, they, and there, it was like a, a promo shot. It looked like maybe it had, it had taken like right after a show or something. They were all sweaty and disheveled and just scary looking, man, mm-hmm. just fucking eerie. And, it caught my attention. It really did. Because, you know, you're used to seeing like rock guys and musicians kind of pretty and kind of, you know, just looking the part. And this was something completely dark and edgy. And, and that's kind of like how my life was growing up kind of just dark and heavy and kind of weird. And so it, it spoke to me in a weird way. And then shortly thereafter, I don't know, within a year or two, I don't remember exactly, I was at a swap meet and I came across a dead boys cassette and I stole the cassette (laughs) and gave it a listen and it fucking, now we're talking. That's what got me into punk rock. I lived in this little suburb of LA about 20 minutes from Hollywood, but um, no one was into punk rock. No one. And I was like this lone little guy just forging my way through it and just figuring it out and, and diving into it. And, uh, fuck dude, it changed my fucking
1: life. Well, and where did you kind of go from getting this dead boys cassette? Like, was there, you know, as you said, you're the only one kind of into this stuff Were you like, actually what kind of music were you into prior to this?
2: All kinds of music. My dad, we had a musical house. My dad, um, mostly like, just like fucking stoner, butt rock, you know, but, (laughs) but, he had also like you know my- Miles Davis or like um, John Coltrane or or just or or uh, you know classical stuff and then just fucking and then just yeah just a, you know probably had like a thousand records and it was it, it it stretched the gamut of all different genres, but for the most part it was just butt rock you know when my dad was into like you know late sixties early seventies his beer drinking, cigarette smoking party rock mm-hmm. but um so so what happened was is I got the Dead Boys, I listened to the Dead Boys, and it fucking blew me away. And then, um, uh, actually, before I got the Dead Boys cassette, and after I had seen the tubes on TV, I heard the B-52s on the radio and the Ramones. And this is probably like 78. Hmm. I heard the Ramones beat on the brat. And I was like, what the fuck is this? They're talking about beating a kid with a baseball bat? Whoa, this is fucking gnarly. This is weird. So it it piqued my interest a little more. Then fast forward, I got the Dead Boys, started listening to the Dead Boys. I had the Ramones and the B52s on my radar. And uh what happened is is I was in 8th grade in middle school and this guy named Lee moved in. Like just fucking kind of scary, edgy, looked different than everybody else. Just, Like he was stocky, strong, kind of looked like a little man, even though we're like 14 years old. And uh, he was, he was into punk rock and he started playing, playing uh, like real punk for me. Like, you know, not, not real punk, not that that wasn't real punk, but like diving into the LA scene, you know, with the alley cats and the germs and, and uh, you know, all these like LA bands and so Lee and I became pretty good friends. He was quite a quite a uh, psychopath. So in between him getting suspended for fighting or smoking cigarettes, we would hang out, and it just opened the door. It just opened the door. So then, you know, I just started going to shows, and you know, and then I started meeting people, and then and then you know, this is like in 1981 now, and uh, it just it just spoke to me man i finally finally had something that i felt like it was mine i was i belonged to something that was you know uh, like a secret society of misfits and it had this violent air about it and this 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 pent up aggression that spoke to me because that's kind of like the household that i came from and it gave me an outlet you know <laughs> it was it, it just it meant the world to me, you know, I would sit in my room and just listen to music for hours and just just dissecting these bands and the lyrics
1: and, you know, probably what a lot of kids the same journey as a lot of kids. Absolutely. Well, going back to Lee, like, where'd you think Lee was getting into this stuff? Because you're pretty young and this stuff's pretty obscure at the time, right? Lee
2: was from uh, he moved up to where I was living. I, I was, like I said, I was like 20 minutes out of LA. I mean, out of, out of Hollywood, about 10 minutes North of downtown LA in this little suburb called Glendale. And Lee was from Lakewood. Lakewood is a suburb of long beach, which is South LA long beach. is a big fucking, it's like, it's a different beast. It's a different animal. And actually that's where I've been living now for the last 30 years is long beach. But, um, it was less isolated than Glendale, so there was more of the surf scene and the skate scene, and and all that kind of stuff, which kind of lent itself to the punk rock scene. Mm-hmm. So you know, and it wasn't far from Hermosa Beach, where where a lot of like seventies punk rock was coming from. You know, so it was it was less isolated. So that's how how he got into it, and then he brought it up to me. So to speak. it was already on my radar, but
1: he he helped me dive into it. And who were some of the first bands, like other than the Alley Cats, I guess, that were kind of, you were drawn to?
2: Oh, man. I really liked Red Cross, mm-hmm. even though they were kind of goofy and sticky. Uh,
0: fuck.
1: You know, it's,
2: Fear was one of my all-time favorites, and seeing them back then was just fucking out of control.
1: That must have been insane.
2: Yeah, it was. Um you know, you know, I'm kind of drawing a blank to be honest with you. I mean, we're talking like 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, like who, who was on my rotation, you know? But, you know, <laughs> every, I think, Sunday night, there was a radio show called Rodney on the Rock from this guy named Rodney Bingenheimer. Mm-hmm. And he, I don't know, it was from like, I don't know, 10 to midnight. And he would play like local LA punk bands and stuff like that. And it was fucking goddamn badass.
1: And so going from like the stuff you would, been into to go into these shows like what were some of the first bands you went and saw
2: uh, first band i went and saw was china white and shattered face at this club called godzilla's in 1981 and you know i saw a bunch of fucking really like when people go like what bands did you see and i rattle them off They're like no fucking way no fucking way but yeah i mean la had this like Revolving doors of the same bands playing different clubs like, you know, you can go see circle jerks. You can go see bad religion. You can go see um, Fear, you know, like there was like these handfuls of clubs the Vex the whiskey um, Fuck Hong blanks. The and... Yeah, Hong Kong was a little bit before me <laughs> Was a little bit before me then that's um, But like the vet the, there was three different Vexes. There was whiskey. There was this place called Bards Apollo and uh, There was the Cathay de Grand came in a little bit later on, like more like 82. Okay, Um, you know, but there was all these places Oh, like there's Ukrainian Cultural Center. There was there was uh, these little halls that would put shows on and it was just going off.
1: Mm -hmm. It feels like that's also more of like, I guess, what would have been the second wave of stuff that was coming in, like when hardcore was kind of had taken over.
2: Yes, that's that's exactly it. Like there was the first wave of like 70s punk rock that was more on the artsy fartsy kind of side of things, you know. Mm-hmm. And then and then probably starting in about 79, even though I wasn't going to shows in 79 and or any you know, I was 79 I was 13 years old. Um <laughs> yeah. uh there was there was an aggressive more scary Element coming in the songs were faster, and they're more "fuck you" in your face, and and there's more fighting and more drinking and more just like being a fucking delinquent, mm-hmm. you know. And that's what spoke to me. I don't know why, just just getting out this fucking aggression and getting and just ah, just just not knowing if the if the venue is going to explode or not,
1: you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you also hear, you know, and it's also been kind of made story of and legend of of, of, the, of the violence that's been going on. You guys definitely talk about it in the book. Um, more Mike's chapter. I find that he talks about like a lot of the violence that he kind of witnessed and stuff at those shows. Like, do you think a lot of that stuff's been, you know, has been almost glorified at this point?
2: Well, okay. Like when I first started going to shows, there was violence, but it was more random. Like the pit was violent, you know, it just had this violent aspect of it. But then within a, a year or two, these gangs started emerging You know, and they brought an element of like thuggery. Like, you know, they would walk around in groups of five or six and they would just jump people for no reason. And then those people would like, you know, click up with another gang and then there'd be gang fights. So it started off as just individuals just kind of fucking freaking out and partying. And, you know, you're always going to have the guy that wants to be the biggest and the baddest. And there would be individual fights or, you know, the random. Like You know, I got socked up a few times just randomly but there wasn't this like prison element of it that started coming around in about 83, 83, 84, 85. There was this really strong presence of gangs, like legitimate gangs that would not fuck around, man. I mean, you, you, it, it made it even scarier, but it wasn't the same um angst that drew me to it. It wasn't the same, just like teenage rebellious kids trying to fucking, uh, you know, let out some, some aggression. This was just straight up fucking assholes wanting to hurt people and no other reason. And the only reason they were at the punk shows was to hurt people. It's not that they were fans of the music. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. That was secondary. They were there to fucking be assholes.
1: Yes, because you, like, you hear about the gangs now, but you don't really hear about, you know, as many band members being involved in them. Like, certainly there's some bands that kind of get brought up in those conversations, but it's not like it seems like it was almost a separate world from the music like you're describing.
2: It was, it was, it was, it was, I mean, there was a band called circle one and circle one had a gang and their leader was named John Macias. And John Messias was the singer of circle one. And they were some of those fucking assholes. Mm-hmm. But, for, but other than that, it was, um, just guys there just to be fucking dicks, you know? Yeah. Uh, it just disenfranchised, uh, Suburban kids that maybe had, I, I don't know, man. I mean, most of those people, I, I knew a lot of them, and Mike knew, knew a lot of them. A lot of them were dead or in and out of prisons now for the rest of your life, the rest of their lives, because that's the path that they set themselves up on. You know, at 18 years old, they would get arrested fighting, and then they would get arrested again with a gun, and then it just progressively got worse and worse and worse. You know, yeah. there was 100% stabbings and guns involved and drive-bys, and it's so weird because it was just punk rock. That's what it was. It wasn't like you grew up in some shitty neighborhood where you're trying to defend your turf so you could sell your drugs. It was these groups of guys would go to a show just to fight another group of guys or whoever else was in the way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it seems like at a certain point that almost kills off like uh, punk rock in LA, like in the mid, like where well, the late '80s, I guess. Like you know, with the exception of you know Bad Religion and L Seven and kind of these these other bands, like kind of rebuilding it. Like it feels like it kind of drops off.
2: It does. I think that, um, I'm not sure if that killed it. I'm not sure what, maybe the newness of punk rock had worn off. So kids discovering it weren't as excited. You know, there was also the the metal wave where a lot of bands were kind of like swinging towards the thrash metal or punk metal kind of vibe. You know, I think maybe just, Like, you know, 81, 82, it was still pretty fucking new. So a lot of people felt the same way I did. They were just discovering it. And they were like, oh, my God, this is rad. But then fast forward five, six, seven years, there's no longer that newness. And, you know, maybe there's something else that got the kids' attention.
1: So, So I guess going back to before that time, definitely. Like, how did you start playing in bands?
2: When I was about 14 and I started listening to punk rock lee my friend lee played he played guitar and then we met a couple other kids from the area there's a guy named we called him flipper from after the band flipper and this guy named dan Batrell. and dan Batrell was probably two or three years older than me we all kind of met we we're from the same area we had same, same tastes of music we're like hey let's let's let's, let's start a band and like all right, cool. Whatever, let's start a band. And I'd always been into music and I'd always wanted to play music. So Lee played guitar. Dan played guitar. And Flipper said, I want to play bass. And then I was like, well, then I guess the only instrument left is drums. So at about 14 years old, I started playing drums. I bought a drum set for 200 bucks. It was a little piece of shit, Rogers. And started playing drums and right away picked it up. Picked it up right away. And within a year, I was playing Costa Cause. And those guys were in their thirties. They could really play like they've been playing since they're kids, I guess, or teenagers. And,
1: uh, so I picked up fast enough to where I was playing shows like legitimate shows within a year. So do you play on those recordings like that are on, we got the party and party animal. Yeah. Oh, those songs are so awesome.
2: Actually the, the first one, I'm not sure if that's me or not. I'm not sure if that was cause I, I did a bunch of mystic recordings with caustic Cause, I don't know if that's me or not. I know that I had recorded (laughs) because it was so long ago, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but, but yeah, yeah, definitely. And then there was like a few other, I think there was a
1: couple other comps that, that Costa cause came out on around the same time. There's, I know there's like the only three songs that I know of that came out are there's the one on the, we got the power comp. Right, um, which is look to the left, look to the act. left. That, that was me. Okay. That's that song rips. And then our backyard, which comes out later on on party animal in 84. I think,
2: I think, I think that was me. I'm per- that was me as well. And then yeah, an look experiment. to the left kind of starts off with like a jungle beat, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: that was me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And yeah. then experiment in terror came out years later on a Roger Murray benefit compilation that grand theft auto put out. Audio That thing. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember that name. Uh, I mean, what what year did that come out? That came out in ninety five. Oh, um, that was
2: de- that was definitely not me.
1: But I think it's an old, it's definitely an old recording, and it's like a surf song with a sax. Um, oh shit, that was me. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. I guess you are owed some royalties, but I, they went to Roger Murray's legal defense fund allegedly, according to this comps liner notes, which I actually oh, bought who- in nineteen ninety five. So, oh really? Yeah, yeah. The,
2: the our sax player's name was Kip, I think. Or no, was that one of the guitar players? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about Costa Cause is like we had, we did like the typical LA punk rock, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then there's also a bunch of surf songs that like those guys could play.
1: So are there more, like there must be more songs out there that are recorded then, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I probably recorded 10 songs with them.
2: I'm just, I'm just throwing the number out there because we did like three or four sessions at Mystic Studios, you know, and you figure a couple songs a session, you know. Um, so yeah, I I would guess, but I don't really know.
1: It's like, I mean, I haven't, I literally haven't talked to those guys since 1983. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's, it's amazing to kind of think of the treasures that are held in those vaults at mystics record studio or wherever Doug Moody is now. I believe he's still alive too. I don't really know. I, I know that like a few years ago when he was, putting out our
2: stuff he was living at his mom's house not to say that his mom was alive or dead but i mean pretty sad when you're like in your 70s living at your mom's house
1: well it's actually like he uh my i just had tony from the band municipal waste on the podcast the other day and he at one point was going to do a zine about record labels and interviewed doug moody for it and he forwarded the email responses from doug moody to his questions and he at the time and this is like eight years ago said he was 81 years old Jesus Christ. Do you remember meeting him for the first time? You know, I
2: actually don't. I don't because, because uh, Mystic Studios was literally a half a block away from Cathay Grand. Okay. And, yes. and so, and Cathay de Grand had shows five nights a week. Or if there was not a show, people were hanging out. It was like the hub. So I would take the bus in you know or i would get a ride in it and, and would just park myself there and i knew everybody and everybody knew everybody and you stayed away from the gangsters and you know and you in and, and you know you just hung out and so i had been in and out of mystic studios god knows how many times it was literally a half a block away so you know people would go over there hey, let's go let's go to mystic and drink some beer or whatever you go up there and hang out with phil or you know the mentors might be
1: recording a song and
2: you go up <laughs> there and hang out with the mentors you know <laughs>
1: That's awesome. You know, I, I love that label. Like I'm a I'm a huge nerd for it too. And like there's just so much great stuff. Like well, I think like the track listing on that party animal comp is a who's who of American hardcore. But just the LA bands, like America's Hardcore's on it, Justice League's on it, like Yeah. It's uh, so like did Costa Cause ever get out of um playing in um in LA area?
2: No. No. We just
1: play at LA, Pasadena, Burbank, West Hollywood you know, no. It um, going back to, you know, those, uh, those early kind of days, did you play with justice league and America's hardcore? Yeah, a bunch, a whole bunch. So were they kind of more part of your scene? Like who, who, how did Costa cause kind of fit in? Like what were the bands that were kind of part of the scene that you were part of? Okay. Well,
2: Costa cause was prior to that, like straight edge thing
0: Mm -hmm.
2: or that LA heart, like America's hardcore and justice league. It was before that. And then, um, and then, uh, what, America's hardcore and Justice League all started about the same time No effect started you also, know so just yeah. just yeah. Justice League was a couple years prior to that I mean not just Costa cause Cost was a couple years prior to that, so Costa cause would just play random shows with random bands we would play like you know with some punk bands or we would play like the fucking the, uh, the you know some venue and you know some weird place with nobody there. <laughs> You know, it, cause we, we with we, we, they were just playing to play shows, you know, no effects started and they weren't really connected with the LA. I mean, okay. How can I explain this? They were older guys. They were in their thirties, you, you know, like 32, 33 years old. I'm 15. So they would just play wherever. When I got into no effects being 16 we became friends with like a lot of other bands that were like sixteen years old. So we would make these packages and play these shows together. Costa Cause was just playing wherever, whenever. Okay. So when No Effect started playing, we would say, Hey, let's play Roxanne's on Tuesday night. Who do you want to get to play with? You know, and then we'd call up so and so and so and so and have like little packages.
1: Yeah, much more of a scene. I guess. Right.
2: Cause right. was just playing and I was just, it was my first band playing out. So playing anywhere, playing in, you know, the music machine in Santa Monica in front of four people on a Tuesday night at seven
1: 30 was <laughs> fucking phenomenal. Yeah. But like, the, so those guys were just like older dudes that just got into hardcore. Cause it's, it sounds like a bunch of young kids playing like ripping hardcore.
2: Yeah, they were older. Uh, you know, like, I think they were like probably they were, uh, they were probably butt rockers in the early 70s. Yeah. You know, and then they discovered punk rock in the mid-70s. Like, fuck yeah, this punk rock shit's kind of fucking badass. And then, you know, they started Costa Cause like in 81. I was the second drummer. Um, so maybe they started Costa Cause in 80, I'm not sure. So I think they and then and then so we they were like ripping guitar players, like fucking good. So they came from like the the rock and roll world discovered punk rock, liked it, played punk rock, and with tinges of other styles of music. I don't think they were ever like punk rock for life kind of attitude, you know? They were just playing it because they liked it.
1: Totally. Um, And I guess like, you know, no effects forms, like, you know, the infamous story of them recruiting you to be in the band. Um, Do you remember meeting Don Bowles for the first time? Like, had you met him before? I'd seen him around
2: at shows. Um, I think the first time I met him was the day before we recorded the... um, our first uh, demo, uh, uh it was it, it, yeah. I met him at I forget, I forget exactly, but I do. I was the one that said, "Hey man, you want to come do our record or produce our, our?" And he was like, "Fuck yeah, cool." You needed a couple bucks, so he came over and did it. And like,
1: I guess he had been playing in Vox Pop probably around then. Yeah, that was about Vox Pop Forty Five Grave. Okay, yeah, absolutely. He was, he was in Forty Five Grave. That was another great fucking LA band. Incredible band. Yeah.
2: God, what was her name? Oh, Diana Cancer. Yeah, forty five grave. They were fucking good. That brings that brings back like like you know all these comps like hell comes to your house. And have you heard that one? I love that comp. Okay, that that's that was like in eighty one ish probably. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was my that was like those bands are like my anthem. So you say what bands did I see back then? And I say I'm drawing a blank. Just go off of that.
1: So one band that I am obsessed with off that comp is that band Modern Warfare. Oh, God, I remember them, but I don't remember the song. Their song on that comp is, like, not nearly as good. They have two singles, and the second single is just ripping. One of my bands, one of my old bands covered it. It's just, like, one of the best kind of raging L.A. punk scene. The vocal's just, like... Are just so over the top. He's like seething the words out as he's screaming. God,
2: you are like the ultimate punk nerd. <laughs> I
1: Well, this is what like actually. I remember meeting you again subsequently, all the all those years later. After I was in fucked up backstage at a show, and just you know, you have your your separate section of the no effects backstage. Um, I believe it's still set up like this. And yeah,
2: stay away, stay away from the fucking hooligans. I just want to relax and watch my Netflix.
1: Yeah, and and you uh, allowed me to have kind of company with you and i just punished the shit out of you and i had a lot more limited knowledge back then so guess what i've been boning up yeah you
2: haven't you've been studying okay here's here's a little interesting tidbit okay remember that band um america's hardcore you brought them up yes the guitar player's name was drew bernstein mm-hmm. and he went
1: on to play in crucifix for a little bit i know the uh, intro to an annihilation off by oh Art. fuck that that record is fucking gnarly oh so good Dude, that is
2: blow your face off from start to finish. So, so he went into playing crucifix and then, and then he started clothing line. I just found out yesterday that he shot himself like five years ago
1: or something, killed himself. I remember hearing it around the time that he had passed away. Um, yeah, no, just I, really tragic.
2: I didn't know that I was, I was fucking around on Instagram and I came across some like old punk rock page, you know, old pictures. And there's a picture of him playing it. And it said, Drew Bernstein, America's hardcore or whatever another one gone too soon. And I was like, what? what and then, so I Googled it and he killed himself. I like in I don't know, 2014 or something.
1: I remember meeting a guy, Sean, who ran a clothing company called rockers NYC, who claimed that he was actually a roadie for no effects at some point, um, early, early on. And, Sean. and he was taught to silkscreen by drew M- Mike, when he was on the podcast denied that this guy, Sean ever roadied for no effects, but he, uh, he was uh taught how to silk screen and, and kind of like brought into the clothing world by Drew. Um dude, it's kind of weird. Like that that guy at twenty-one. I mean, I know that I
2: know people don't really understand know what's going on, it's kind of boring, probably. No, that's what the show's about, dude. Don't worry. Yeah, at twenty-one he had lip service going and it was fucking raging. Twenty one, you're a fucking kid, man. You still
1: get pimples on your face. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's they are like a, a legendary band. You know the movie made with Vince Vaughn and John Favreau? Yeah in the opening sequence of that movie, they're driving down the street and Vince Vaughn's wearing the America's hardcore shirt. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I guess yeah. I guess someone else from the band wound up working in film. I guess a couple of people from the band actually wound up working in film. And one of them worked on the set. And even if you listen to the audio commentary for the DVD of made, this is how nerdy I am. Um, Vince Vaughn brings up the shirt and is like, actually that shirt I'm wearing is of a punk band from the area called America's hardcore. <laughs> he, Vince Vaughn knew that? Well, I'm sure he was fed the line. He must have been, right? Like I've never I trust me, I I follow these trends and I follow these things and I've never heard that he was a punk, but who knows? Yeah. Wow, what if you know who was a
2: punk was John Stewart. I've heard that. Definitely. He was in a he was in a punk band and then Josh Brolin was a punk?
1: Yes, Josh Brolin was in the pre-Rich Kids on LSD band. No, he was not. Yes, he was. I swear to God, he was. Who told you that? Uh, I brought it up to Joey Cape when he was on the podcast. Was he in what was it called? Section Eight or no? Uh, uh. It's not Section was... Eight. It's like some other like I forget what they're called. Like not Thalidomide babies because obviously, but it's like something like that. And Dude, that was
2: one. Of, that was that was one of No first songs, "Thalidomide Child." Yeah,
1: "Thalidomide Child." And I think this might be something like that. I'm trying to remember now, but Josh Brolin was the drummer and apparently some of the dudes wound up being in *Rich Kids and LSD. Wow. I wow. tell you. Also, um, weirdly, um, the um, uh, Michael Ian Black, you know, the from Wet Hot American Summer and all those movies? Do not. Okay. He was in a band with Tim Shaw from Ensign, which is ah. a shocking one for me <laughs> but i don't know who that guy is i don't know what those shows are i'll send you a link i'll send you a link but anyway Please back do. back to this trip back to this journey also uh, on that comp scared straight was another band that you know wound up becoming part of like you know 10 foot pole and ultimately pulley so it's amazing how many of these people that will wind up kind of just graduating on like yourself included obviously to yeah. be the next wave of bands and ultimately kind of take over punk rock
2: yeah like 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 uh uh scared straight they kind of fell in about the same time no Effect started with justice league and all that kind of shit no i mean there was like there's this la straight edge movement that was kind of like the second wave of straight edge. there was the east coast straight edge and there's la straight edge movement no effects was never straight edge but we were about the same age you know we're all about the same age we all kind of started around the same time so it was like there was some camaraderie there mm-hmm. you know you know so we would play a lot of shows with those
1: bands and was it like was this scene less violent generally? Um, was it, it seems like it's was it like kind no, of like Okay, uh,
2: the smaller shows, you know, LA had like these huge shows like at the Palladium and the Olympic where there's 3 4000 people there, you know, or 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 at like SIR studios that had like 1500 people there, you know, like big halls or big venues. These shows that we did with these other bands were just in small little clubs. <laughs> so the asshole element either didn't know about coming – t- didn't know about these shows because it was on such a smaller level or they didn't want to go because there wouldn't be too many people to fuck with. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like I said, they weren't there. They weren't there for the music. They were there to be assholes. So so they – like I would go to fucking party and play music and hang out with my friends. Those other guys would go to fucking kick sh- the
1: shit out of people. Mm, totally. Um, well, I guess moving on from that, like once no effects starts, you know, really getting going and, and, you know, touring and stuff like that, what were the early shows and that you were playing on those first tours? Like what kind of bands were you playing with? Like, I mean, pre, you know, the scene that you ultimately inspire popping up, like where did no Effects fit in?
2: Well, I, I I, see, I don't, I, I know that our first out of town show ever, like we probably played 30 shows in LA. Mm-hmm. Right. We started in 83 and I think our first tour was in 84. I could be wrong about the year, but it was, it was, we set up a little West coast deal. We were a bunch of little 17 year old kids and we got in Eric Belvin's parents station wagon and just went. And our first out of town show was in um Reno with seven seconds. And that was like the equivalent of like some garage metal band opening up for iron maiden. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. like, it, it like seven seconds was a pretty fucking good band. They had worldwide popularity and we're, and we're playing their hometown.
1: Yeah. And
2: you know, in most of our shows in LA were in front of literally a handful of people or we play a bunch, we played a bunch of parties, you know, in front of a handful of people. There's probably 200 people at this show. So it was like playing in front of a fucking stadium, yeah. you know? So it was bad so we did this little West coast run and we just, every town we played in, we just kind of played with local bands, you know? And, and we were so bad, like literally bad, that uh, we didn't sound like anything. We didn't really have a, a genre. I mean, we have a genre as punk rock, but we just sound like a bunch of kids fucking twanking away, you know? So I, we didn't really fit in with like any one band in particular.
1: Also, you had a mic stand, too, which I think probably, you know, prevents like, you know, seven seconds. I guess Kevin was probably just on, you know, on the mic, right? He wasn't doing guitar. Yeah, I, I,
2: don't, I don't remember exactly. I don't remember. Um, you know, as weird as my drumming, like, I picked it up really quick. And like I said, within a year, I'm playing with guys that could really play.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: When I quit Costa Cause in, I don't know, 83 to join NoFX... Since those guys, since Mike and Melvin were just beginning to learn how to play, my drumming went, got so bad so quick because (laughs) you, you rise to the occasion. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like I was playing with guys that understood music and understood tempo and understood like dynamics. And Mike and Melvin didn't even know how to fucking tune. So I went from being like a decent drummer at, you know, two years in to like fucking being a full blown beginner. And I didn't even ever realize that until way after the fact.
1: No, it, it uh, you know, it's funny, too, because like the no effects records early on, like I love them and they've got like a, a certain charm to them. But like you're saying, it's just like it nowhere betrays the band that you would become, except like right. the, the drumming does like, you know, you're never a bad drummer.
2: No, no, no. The liberal animation record, I, I drum pretty bad because that's when Bomber from RKL, was kicking ass and I, and I really wanted to emulate him mm-hmm. and there's no way anybody can emulate him, so what it did is it sidetracked me from what I was good at and showcased what I was bad at
1: that yeah i could well, I could definitely see like I still love that record though, and I finally tracked down like a, a first press of it with the uh, <laughs> the red on black impossible to <laughs> cover yeah here's a little okay, you read the book, right you know that guy Raymond The yeah, psych,
2: the yeah. psychopath he drew that album cover really, yes. Yeah and Raymond's real
1: name is Ryan and you can see it. it so is I was going to say cuz on the on the even on the audiobook you still refer to him as Raymond. Is he is he like around? He's in
2: that? No, he's in prison for life, but when the, when the, when we were doing the book, he was out. And I didn't want to give him any recourse or whatever. You know, it'd be, he, he he was a lot like that guy from uh, oh god, Robert De Niro from that Cape Fear. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he just had a way of fucking with, like I could come home from 7-Eleven day and he'd just be sitting in, sitting in my living room watching TV, talking to my wife. And I'd be like, oh fuck. You know? Yeah. yeah so dude. he was out of prison at the time, even though he'd spent most of his life in prison when we were doing that book. And um, I just didn't want to give him anything, you know?
1: So was he someone from the punk hardcore scene?
2: He was one of those guys that gravitated towards it because of the violence. Yeah. You know, like, he had spent most of his teen years in prison, and when he got out, he, you know, it was, like, when RKL was kicking out, because he was from Santa Barbara, is when RKL and all that shit was going on, and then he gravitated towards it because of the violence.
1: So, the RKL scene must have been pretty heavy. Meaning what? Like, well, like, when Mike was on the show, he described it as the only band in history that had a pimp and a prostitute in the band at the same time. And... (laughs) And, uh, right. like, it just seems from like what you're describing, like the people that are gravitating towards it because of the popularity, because it's raging, seems to be like a heavy kind of crowd.
2: What Mike's talking about was in the later years of RKL, like in the early nineties, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even later, you know, like when they, when they went to Epitaph, mm-hmm. um, when I, I moved to Santa Barbara in 85 and I got to know all those guys really well. Cause Santa Barbara's a small town and they were just skater party guys you know what i mean like santa Barbara's a weird town it's like there's a lot of money and a lot of really super rich kids and then there's a lot of just average kids and when those two mix it just is a recipe for disaster for some weird reason so what it was it was all these fucking surfer kids that had a lot of them had way too much money and a lot of them had way too much time and it was just a big fucking party scene you know what mike's talking about is like years later when that party scene actually turns into a very fucking detrimental lifestyle.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it all catches up eventually.
2: Right. Right.
1: Um, I guess going back to when it was, um, you know, before that time, do you remember the first time you ever saw RKL live?
2: <sighs> yeah, I do actually. It wasn't at a show. It was when they were recording their first
1: single at mystic
2: studios. Remember, like I said, we, you'd go over to mystic and hang out. Yeah. I walked in there and RKL was doing their very first single. And this is probably 83.
1: Yeah, it is A3. That's yeah, okay. fucking rips.
2: And I remember watching Bomber play drums through the glass, and I had never heard of RKL because they're from a hundred miles away. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no internet, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck am I listening to? <laughs> what the fuck is he playing? And and that was my introduction to RKL.
1: One of the uh the best bands ever. And actually recently I picked up a a copy of Keep Laughing, a reissue, autographed by Doug Moody. Oh, shit. He autographed it. <laughs> he autographed it. And he did, I guess he did 300 of them because it's numbered out of 300. But it's signed by Doug Moody with a little sparkly star sticker beside his signature. That is
2: so fucking funny. <laughs>
1: it's so weird. That is so weird. <laughs> I had to buy it, though, because I was like, it's so weird. Like, how could I not purchase this thing? All right. So how much was it? Oh, it was like 10 bucks. Oh, (laughs) and it's also like my third copy of keep laughing too. Like I really did not need it, but I couldn't say no. Couldn't say no to Doug Moody's sparkly face. (laughs) Could not say no to Doug Moody's, uh, you know, to think about him at 70, you know, some odd years old sitting at his parents' place doing these records. Like, Man, this guy, you know, allegedly worked with Pink Floyd, right? Or Led Zeppelin. That's, what that's Led Zeppelin. Supposedly, I mean, I don't know, the rumor has it
2: that the board that we all recorded off of, Led Zeppelin used on their first couple records.
1: It's amazing how different it sounds on the Mystic Recordings than it sounds on those early Led Zeppelin records.
2: Yeah, because <laughs> I, uh, it's just because you got a board doesn't mean the band's going to sound fucking awesome. <laughs> You know, and and Phil, the guy Phil that was recording, I don't think spent too much time on fucking worrying about shit. He was just like, all right, what, what, okay. What Mystic Studios was and was a puppy mill for shitty teenage punk bands. (laughs) Bring them in. You'd fucking breed and make a bunch of fucking shitty little fucking puppy punk songs and kick them out and then bring in the next fucking band.
1: But it's funny because like, you know, you think about all that stuff that he recorded, like none of it's commercial. Like it's not like the guy that was like putting together all the boy bands in the 90s, like trying to get hits to make money. Like, what do you think his end game was other than just recording bands? It's a good point. I mean, like, you know, I bet you our first single, we sold in the first five years maybe a thousand copies. You know what I mean? And yeah. there's no money there's no money in that. Yeah. Like you and also like you know, like I imagine. Thank God for no effects, because I can imagine all those best of no effects Max Rock and Roll CDs probably kept that dude afloat for years and years. Absolutely, afterwards. absolutely. Like you know, like when we started gaining
2: traction as a band, like in ninety two or something like that, ninety three, ninety two. Like when when it started really working, then all of a sudden we started seeing remixes and remakes and <laughs> compilations. You know, like that Mystic was just re- with with us, and it was like, whoa, what the fuck? And and I am sure. You know, he did pretty good off of that for for a minute.
1: Oh, I'm sure he did. I guarantee he did, because I I certainly bought a couple copies myself. But it's also the Stern brothers were on the show and tell the story about when they were recording there and went down and shook him down with the guys from Regression for the tapes. Oh,
2: shit. Those guys were scary looking, too.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and then they kind of they kind of blame that incident, though, for hooking him up with all the hardcore bands. They're like, if we hadn't done that, he probably would never met the aggression guys. It probably would have never gone down that road. Oh, good point, man. So
2: how's that? They they go shake him down with aggression, and then aggression gets a record deal.
1: Aggression got, ag- aggression got a record deal out of it. I guess you know, the Doug Moody saw paychecks walking in the door with those guys or something. Well,
2: there was a bunch. I mean, there was a bunch of little like little record labels. Like there was Posh Boy, mm-hmm. and there was a couple other ones. But I mean, Posh Boy actually had some quality bands, and you could see that that it would it would sell you know when when mystic was coming out they were just firing stuff out so much that even if there was something
1: good it got lost in the shit yeah yeah and it's amazing how long it kept going and how early it starts too when did mystic start 81 82 no it starts in the 70s with who it starts in like 78 with like a bunch of like novelty records um like in a bunch of weird disco records. And the actually the, one of the first punk records they put out is this band. Hey taxi, which is the drummer of the Minutemen's band. He did before he, the minute before he joined the Minutemen. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. But like, yeah, yeah, it starts like really early on and, and goes right until like, I think, well, obviously thanks to you guys right into the late nineties. Huh.
2: huh? Yeah. I, did, I had, I had no idea it started that. I mean, the first I ever remember hearing of mystic was probably like mentors and stuff like that.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, well, they were they're really early too, and Vox Pop is super early as well, and, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. But I guess it's like Aggression, Ill Repute, and all the all the hardcore bands that where it really gets kind of you know churning out those releases.
2: They probably sold pretty good with the Aggression and the Ill Repute.
1: It was it was the wave immediately after that of
2: all the little singles that they put out. That was probably just you know he was just clamoring to
1: keep it keep it alive. Yeah yeah um another big band i wanted to ask you about because you guys cover them is the neos do you remember first hearing the neos no i don't that was mike mike was they were east coast right Uh, they're from vancouver victoria actually okay
2: yeah mike was into all these bands outside of la and he would present stuff to us like you you know we recorded a song by this band called impact unit yeah which was dickie barrett's first punk band you (laughs) know and mike I think I, I could be wrong, but I think Mike was like kind of pen pally with people in bands and they would send music back and forth. So if we recorded a Neo song or did a Neo's classic it's because or cover it's because Mike brought it to the table. Yeah. I I didn't really know much of that shit.
1: Later on, when you become part of the dog patch, winos, Like what kind of music was involved in that? Like, I know it was mainly like a party gang, but did it have any sort of, you know, musical affiliation with the winos? Yeah.
2: Um, there wasn't really any bands associated with it what we were though was we okay this is kind of where it gets back into the gang territory dog patch were uh a little bit of a faction off of the lads the los angeles death squad mm-hmm. and we and we were the lads were a bunch of badass motherfuckers the, the dog patch were just a bunch of fucking drunken stupid idiots you know kind of like the fucking uh gilligan from gilligan's island you know <laughs> it's you know hanging out with a fucking a bunch of bunch of nazis even though wait i take that back lads aren't a bunch of nazis they're a very mixed race but what i'm saying is is the degree of of anger mm-hmm. so there weren't really any bands associated with the winos unless it was us at the time you know but um yeah, we were just a bunch of fucking just drunken idiots and you know, we'd get in our fights and get in our little scraps and all this kind of shit, but we were just drunken idiots.
1: So yeah, once again, it was something that was kind of completely removed from the music side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, punk rock was our thing. Like that's where we all came from, but it was just
2: like, and we gravitated towards punk rock, but it was just like, it, you know what it was? As, as cheesy as it sounds, it was a bunch of guys looking for some solidarity, and brotherhood for a fraternity of sorts. You know what I mean? Like You have jocks, you have fraternities, you have these clubs where you feel a part of something mm-hmm. and it feels special. The same reason why when I got into punk rock, I felt a part of something and I felt special. When I got uh, jumped into the winos, I felt like a part of something inside of something. Like you, it makes you feel special about yourself. And what it is, it's just, just insecurity and looking for um, validation.
1: And was it something you actually had to be jumped into?
2: Uh, I had to headbutt John Brandon,
1: the leader and the starter
2: of Doc Dutch Winos. I have no fucking idea how many times we headbutted each other until he said until he said, Okay, you're good. <laughs>
1: oh. It I remember it too, dude. It fucking hurt. I can't even begin to imagine. Um, that sounds pretty severe.
2: <laughs> yeah, because he's trying to headbutt me to get me to back down. And I'm trying to headbutt him to not back down,
1: you know. And it <laughs> yeah. fucking was stupid. Well, it's like Rams. It's like when you see those Rams just smashing yes! skulls together.
2: Yes, fuck, it hurt. But then you can't let on that it hurt.
1: Yeah, no, you can't at all. Um, I guess, like in the, in the book, you talk about what you know the feeling of when you know you come back from that first tour and you should have made ten thousand dollars each, and obviously you were dealing. That was with-
2: the first. That was the first tour in year No, no, that was. That was our third tour in Europe, but it was the first tour we ever made money.
1: Yeah, sorry, the first tour you ever made money on when you came right. back with that much money. At that point, was it like, you know, obviously you're still wrestling with drug issues, but you know, in a major way, you're dealing with drug issues. I meant, I didn't mean to diminish it, but yeah. no, no, no. At the same time, like all this stuff is kind of happening as far as the music stuff goes. Were you able to kind of take in that part of the experience, like and in, in, like at all, or oh. were you? No. Yeah, of course,
2: man. Like the band was booming. Punk rock was booming. I mean, there was, I mean, fuck yeah. I felt the pride and I felt the swell of the music and I felt the wave of, of, of all of that. But, you know, I mean, I was also, uh, tormented by heroin, yeah. you know, but yeah, I I knew that we were on the cusp of something special for sure. You know, I remember what, I mean, we, there was one night when um, we played in someplace in Germany, I think we talk about it in the book, where we actually made ten thousand dollars at a show like we had five years earlier no a a year earlier we're playing playing for 30 bucks you know it was the combined of the door and our merchandise and it was like a i don't know maybe a thousand people at the show was like what the fuck and it was it was like not to make it about money But it was like, are you fucking kidding me? What the fuck? And we all went to the bar and bought drinks for everybody and raging. Just, it was out of control. It was
1: the weirdest feeling. It was like if you won the lottery. Who were you playing with in Europe at that time? Like on even the time before, was it mainly like American bands going over or like that? I know you did that split with Drowning Roses.
2: Right. The first time we went over with Drowning Roses, uh, I think the second time we went over with uh, this band Happy Hour, which was David Pollack from Destiny Records Band. Okay. And maybe the third time too, but we were just playing with whoever, like, you know, we were just in a van driving and whoever was there, like, you know, sometimes it would be another band from the United States. Most of the time it was just local German bands. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, there was, it was not a package deal or anything. We were just driving and
1: playing halls,
2: little venues, you know, auditoriums, shit like that.
1: Yeah. And it's a, it's a destiny records kind of scene like no allegiance and all those bands,
2: I guess. Yeah. No allegiance was
1: David Pollock's first band. Okay. And then, and then, but yeah, it, yeah, but we were just playing with
2: whoever, whatever. And I remember at the time too, a lot of German bands would show up without equipment, you know? <laughs> and they're like, hello, no, no effects. We are here to play. We are opening up for you. Where is the drum set. And we're like, what the fuck are you talking about? You've known you've had this show for nine months and you don't have a drum set. And they would get pissed off. Hey, hold on. My dog's trying to help my leg. <laughs> stop and then um yeah they would get pissed off like dude what happens if you break my fucking kick drum pedal and then we gotta play yeah you know so
1: that's what it was it was still very grassroots it was still very small you know it's funny because it felt like that it was like that when the first time we went to england where we're touring and we're the backline company coming to play a show and it's like wait we don't live here like (laughs) yeah
2: yeah exactly you know
1: so, yeah, it was still very
2: small and it was still very grassroots roots, and it was still D, D, DIY. I mean, there's still shows where there's 15 people there. And then then every once in a while, there would be a show where there's 500 people there. But but for the I think we were out there for that tour where we made the 10,000 bucks, I'm going to say close to three months. Wow. And, and it was maybe two, but it was a long fucking time. So if you divide, you know, let's say it was two months. Let's say we played 45 shows in two months. You know, you know, we. We made a couple hundred bucks a show.
1: Were you playing all Germany too at that time? Were you going over the UK at all? or uh,
2: I know though. I mean, we would do like Italy and Spain and Austria and Switzerland. And we even tried to go to Yugoslavia mm-hmm. before it was, you know, before the revolt.
1: Um,
2: yeah, I'm going to say we went to the UK.
1: Okay. So it wouldn't be 45 days in Germany. That's, no, that's no, like no. It was, it tour. was, it was continental Europe. Okay so like i guess like was there a moment where you felt like where the, this music was catching on like i know Nevermind is brought up a lot in the book uh by various people but like do you remember a time where you're like oh geez the, these shows are changing like the type of people that are coming out aren't necessarily you know the same old punks
2: uh no i don't actually i mean maybe because i'm so far removed you know we're 30 years from them Mm -hmm. from then Mm -hmm. but i mean there was definitely a there was at some point a changing in the guard to when where it wasn't like where it was more mainstream yeah i guess so i guess like with the green day and the blink and all that no not not blink green day and the hit of the offspring it became way more mainstream and and there wasn't this um Okay, when I got into punk rock, you were either punk rock or you weren't. And if you showed up at a show with long hair and a fucking Led Zeppelin t shirt, you got fucking fucked up. You got your hair got cut, you got cut with a bottle, you know, there was there was this this us against them mentality. And then fast forward twenty years later, or not even that, ten years later, it was like, come one, come all. So there was definitely a um a big difference in the in the crowd.
1: That must've been a weird time too. Cause that's like around the time, like I think it was circus magazine did a stolen interview with you guys where they posed as a fanzine and, and ran an interview with you because
2: Oh and, fuck, I didn't know. I don't know about this.
1: I remember this happening. Like this also was pre-internet. So this could just be word of mouth rumor, but there was like an interview in like one of those big mainstream sort of like circus type hit parade type magazine type. things right. But then it turns out it was some guy that, posed as a fanzine and then sold the interview to circus.
2: Is that the one where Mike is talking shit about Henry Rollins?
1: I think so. Okay.
2: I, I kind of remember that. I didn't, I didn't know the, you know, the sto- the backstory of it. But I remember at one point, Mike was like, I didn't fucking do this for this reason. And I'm not doing interviews now. You know, he was, he was doing the Trump shit. Fake, fake news. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Totally. <laughs> uh, Eric, this has been amazing. And would you come back at some point in the future for a part two? Absolutely. I mean, I hope I didn't bore everybody and I hope that the story,
2: you know, the, the there was some context and some fluidity and some linear, you
1: know, uh, verbiage, you know, the shit worked. Well, if there wasn't, it's my fault. So don't take any blame yourself for that. Uh, but before, A movie's only as good as, it, as its director. <laughs> <laughs> before. Yeah, exactly. And, and unfortunately, we're dealing with like. You know, the uh the, the not not the greatest. We're not dealing with Kubrick over here. But um <laughs> before I let you go, I did want to talk to you about um kind of like what I kind of see is like a sonic leap forward that the band made kinda of early on, which is the longest line EP, which just feels like you know, obviously there's there's a new guitar player coming in and things like that, but it just feels like that was a point where you guys were kinda of going to a different sound. Was that something that just kind of came out naturally or is that
2: yeah it, it, it wasn't by design
1: it wasn't like oh,
2: okay now we need to change our sounds like this and that like what it was is is we were recording in the studio that bad religion had recorded their last two records on you know west beach
0: mm-hmm.
2: we were using brett and donald who it was just their recording technique and we rented drums that were very good drums that had very good sounds you know and it was just it was just with the tools that were given to us by the studio you know it it was nothing like we are physically trying to change the sound and um and steve was a is a very good guitar player very good and i he he started talking to us about tones like you know if you have a guitar tone we would just play loud and obnoxious and out of tune. He's like, look, guys, we got to stay in tune. We got to have a good guitar tone because you're only as good as you sound, you know? Mm -hmm. So there was that. But the progression of our sound wasn't on purpose. It was just with the tools that were given to us. And then we were able to, as we got a little more popular, buy better equipment to maintain that sound.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, Eric, anytime you want to come back, the door is always open.
2: Well, thank you very much. I really, really, really
1: uh, stoked on this. And sorry it took so long. You know, the
2: world's a weird place these days.
1: Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, he will be back for part two at some point in the future. I love seeing that dude. Since, since I was a kid, he's always been cool. Always a nice smile. And uh, I love seeing that guy every time. Every time I'm running to him backstage. And so hopefully I get to see him again soon. Speaking of soon... Coming up very soon, as we continue this no effects week that we are on in celebration of the single album, which will be coming out very soon. Returning to the show, the most listened to episode ever. Fat Mike will be back for a part two. That's right, Mike is here. Completely different vibe from the first time he was on the show. This is a uh, this is a uh, a very different kind of interview, but don't worry, it's still combative. We still argue. He still thinks my taste in music sucks, and I still, uh... well, you'll hear it. You'll hear it coming up later on on the show. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, remember, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and, and help trans people protect themselves. Uh, go out of your way to get informed. Uh, read articles from reputable sources don't go on you know there's lots of reputable sources and they're easy to figure out uh get informed about what's going on in the world right now uh, donate sign petitions show up be involved just basically talk to people around you just just you know we got to get rid of fascism that's basically the end game here we're trying to get rid of this thing this this ugly monster that just keeps rearing its head every few years so just just smash it, smash fascism And whenever you can uh, Go out there And sign your organ donor cards Because by the time they come looking for those organs You don't need them, you don't need them Just dead weight as we like to say around here But no, seriously, please sign your organ donor cards uh, And give blood if you can too That's definitely very necessary Right now uh, And also, <laughs> make something creative Go out there and make your own culture Start a band, start a fanzine Start a podcast, do whatever you want to do uh, people hit me up all the time for advice on how to start a podcast. Uh, just just do it. It's so easy. If I can do it, anyone can do this shit. I promise you, anyone can do this shit. Um, wear a mask. Uh, stay safe. And uh, I love you. And I'll see you next episode with Fat Mike. Part 2. Oh boy. It's a doozy. Thanks for listening.